0: Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Well, before we get started, before we have opening prayer, I've got a couple of announcements to remind everybody about. First of all, we have a congregational meeting this coming uh, Sunday, immediately following the morning. Uh, worship service to discuss and then vote on whether or not we want to pick up the option on this uh, space to immediately to our south uh, for expansion. In light of that, and just to illustrate the need for that, we have a, <laughs> a little storage issue coming up, and we have to move all the stuff that's behind this screen over here that's being stored over there, which involves a piano. So that means some of you guys who are Weak minds and strong backs can help. And we need to move the piano from there to move it over here behind this screen. And hopefully next week we can move it into new space. So that's uh, we have a pipe organ that is being delivered tomorrow that will be going back over here. So that will be uh, taking up even more space. So uh, that's just another bit of God's special grace for us. Uh, we keep keep growing, so we need to have the space. Uh, what else do we need to announce? Uh, anything else coming up? We have a family night coming up. That's right. We have a family night coming up, the last Saturday night in September, and it's sort of preparatory for the fall and for Thanksgiving. So we'll be showing a film on Squanto and then talking about some of the things as we go through the fall related to the founding of our country and the uh, – original settlers with the pilgrims and the influence of Christianity on the founding of America. So that sort of kicks off some of the things we'll be going through in the fall. All right, before we get started, we need to have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship. We need to go to the Lord to seek his guidance and direction in our study. So let's bow our heads together and we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity that we can come together study your word, that we can reflect upon what we have learned in the past uh, three or four years as we have worked our way through Genesis. So many wonderful doctrines and tremendous uh, things that we understand about you and your plan, who you are, the demonstrations of your faithfulness and your grace and all the many doctrines that we have studied over the past Uh, several years. Now, Father, we pray that as we uh, finalize this study, put these things together, that the Holy Spirit will uh, store them in our soul. We know that he will use that for recall and application at the proper time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in our last class on Genesis. We've had 177 hours total in Genesis, covering all 50 chapters, and going through quite an array of different doctrines. Now, just to remind you, Genesis has two sections to it. And the first section has to do with the what? The early history of man, the early history of the human race. And the second division has to do with the early history of Israel. And we often think about all those Centuries. I mean, I I do. I don't know what other people think about, but just think about all that time from the creation of the world, which was around 4,000 to 4,400 BC, the time that God created Adam, put him in the garden. From that to to the call of Abraham, which was about uh, 20, uh, about 2,000 BC, you have a little over 2,000 years. Just think, think of all the people that lived during that time. Just think of all the things that happened. We're just told about a few of them. But billions of people lived on the planet during that time, and we know that when we examine so much that was going on up into the flood and then after the flood and all that God did and all the civilizations and movements of people and everything else, and we know so little, if anything, about any of that that went on during that time other than what God Revealed to us, and that's all just summarized for us in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And then God begins to drill down in detail on one particular individual and his family as he begins to focus on working out the plan. We've seen in the past that that focuses on that initial promise of of redemption. So we have the two basic divisions, the four events at the beginning on the early history of mankind. And then the uh, early events of Israel, the early history of Israel. The four events are what? Creation, Creation fall, fall. Flood. flood, Babel. Yeah, I can't hear you very well. Creation, fall, flood and Babel. Eight things to think through. Then you have four people, and they are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And Joseph, See, now you've worked your way through all of Genesis. There is uh, an organization internally that you usually don't see in English unless you're uh, especially pay- paying attention because one of my beefs with translators is they don't consistently translate original language, words, and phrases the same way all the way through. So some translations will even vary this. But in the Hebrew, it's always the same. You have this word toledote, and it has to do with the... Uh, generations or these are the records. This is what happens to uh, these individuals. We start off in the first chapter as a prelude, uh, introduction from one one to two three, which is the creation. And then we have what happens to the heavens and the earth in two four to four sixteen, then what happens to Adam in five one to six eight, then what happens to Noah in six nine to nine twenty nine. What happens to Noah's sons in ten one to eleven nine? Now that's not a lengthy section, and it's one of those genealogies that most people yawn and say, "Why do I have to read this?" and they skip over. And yet, there's so much interesting stuff embedded there if you take the time to study that in, uh, over against world history. Then it focuses down, narrows in on just one of the sons, Shem, from eleven ten to ten uh, to eleven twenty six, ending with. Terah. Now Terah is the father of Abraham first called Abram, Avram, Haran, and Terah and Nahor Haran and Abraham. Those three sons, and so the focus is on Abraham from actually 12:1 all the way down through 25:11. And then there's a brief shift to Ishmael. Now, we've covered this much in terms of our review. Now, the remainder of the book focuses on Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But we have a couple of loose ends tied up. Chapter 36, we have Esau mentioned twice, and then we have uh, Jacob mentioned and the 12 tribes that come from Jacob. So that's what our focus is going to be tonight, just trying to wrap this up and going back through this. Now, the key element that is is so important to understanding what happens in the rest of Genesis, and in fact, the rest of the Old Testament is the Abrahamic covenant. If you don't understand the Abrahamic covenant, then the rest of the Old Testament just isn't really going to make sense because everything else from Genesis 12 through 18, when the covenant's really developed, all the way through the Old Testament is an outworking of how God fulfills this promise to Abraham and his descendants. And there's three elements in the Abrahamic covenant. The land, the seed, and the blessing. That God promised a specific piece of real estate described in the scripture to Abraham. We saw that last time. And he promised him descendants through a a son. And at the time, Abraham was already getting fairly old and Sarah was getting advanced in years. And then they still had to wait about another 20 years before God fulfilled the promise, teaching them to wait on him and to trust him. And in that time, he took Abraham through various tests to see if Abraham would really trust him to provide what he had promised. And Abraham slowly learned that God was true to his word and what God promised God would fulfill. And finally, Isaac is born when Abraham is a 100 and Sarah is 90. The Abrahamic covenant is worked out in those descendants. Now, it becomes important later on in the Old Testament because there is a further development of the land promise in the Israel land covenant or real estate covenant that's developed in Deuteronomy 30. There is a development of the seed promise, specifically through David, that the Messiah would come through David. That term seed has its origin in Genesis 3.15 when god told addressing the serpent said the seed of the the serpent would crush the would uh, crush the, uh, the the serpent would be crushed by the seed of the woman but the seed of the serpent would uh, crush the heel of the seed of the woman it would not be a permanent wounding but the serpent would end up being fatally and permanently uh, wounded and destroyed so that seed of course is ultimately identified as the lord jesus christ and then blessing through the new covenant, uh, Jeremiah 31, where we have worldwide blessing through the seed, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that becomes a structure for understanding all of God's plan and purposes in the human race. So if you don't understand the Abrahamic covenant, you can't fully understand and appreciate everything else that's going on in the rest of the Old Testament. Now next week, just as a preview of coming attractions, we're going to leap across several uh, books and events in the Old Testament to the period of the united monarchy. We're going to jump to 1 Kings. So I'm going to have to do a little summary of Israel's history, what happens between Genesis and 1 Kings in the introduction, but we're going to go through 1 and 2 Kings in order to Uh, Really, what I want to do is focus on Elijah and Elisha, but there's so much there. And I was reflecting on it today as I was studying ahead that there's a lot of similarity between what happens to Israel in the period of the kings and what happened to Israel during the period of the judges because they make the same mistake. They they get away from the law. They get away from God. They get into uh, idolatry, especially in the northern kingdom. They get into idolatry. They get into the fertility religions, and it ends up destroying the culture, destroying their national identity, and they become defeated. There's so many tremendous parallels between what is happens in the northern kingdom and what's happening in western civilization today as we have completely uh, slipped our anchor from our Judeo-Christian heritage and from the heritage of the Reformation and Bible doctrine. So the Abrahamic Covenant's foundation. Now, as we go through from Genesis 12 all the way to Genesis 50 with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, we see that there are numerous reinforcements, confirmations of that covenant. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 records that initial promise to Abraham. It's clarified, made more precise in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, but uh, after Abraham dies, the covenant is confirmed again. Now, what I've got at the bottom of this slide looks like just a whole bunch of numbers, but those are the scripture passages, each of which is a reaffirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. See how many times God restates the promise. Now, the first set that are all in yellow from 12, uh, 1 through 3, uh, 12, 7, and 9, 7 through 9, Uh, 13, 14 through 18, chapter 15, 1 through 18, chapter 17, 1 through 27, chapter 22, 15 through 19. Those are all the confirmations of the original covenant to Abraham. Then the next grouping is in white, 26, 2 through 6, 24 to 25, 27, 28 to 29, and 38 to 40. These have to do with Isaac. Now, a couple of those at the end there in 27, Isaac is talking to Jacob, and he's talking about how this blessing, the, the covenant, is going to be passed on to Jacob. And then the next grouping, again, I went back to yellow. Uh, 28, 1 through 4, 28, 10 to 22, 31, 3, and 11 to 13. 31, 3, and 11 to 13. Chapter 32, 22 to 32. And chapter 35, 9 through 15, God reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob. And then the last set that's in white is when Jacob is blessing the sons of Joseph and when the Abrahamic covenant is being confirmed and passed down to Joseph and his descendants in 48, 3 through 4, 48, 10 through 20, 49, 1 through 28, and chapter 50, verses 23 to 25. All of these are reaffirmations of that covenant. How in the world can anybody come along and say that God somehow changes the significance of the covenant in terms of the land. That's so important to understand what's going on in Israel today. Do the Jews have a God-given right to the land? And that foundation is, is right here. And we've gone through this in the study we did last year on Israel past, present, and future showing that their return to the land today is not just something that happens in history. It's not just another thing like um you know the founding of uh, the united states or you know whatever the unification of germany in the 19th century the unification of italy in the 19th century uh, this is not just some historical fact that could occur again it is remarkable that a people who have been scattered throughout the world and have uh, assimilated into many cultures and many nations and uh, almost to the point of losing their national identity in fact Historically, I would argue that the Holocaust was such a was brought brought about in God's plan to prevent the complete absorption of Jews into culture, because the rise of antisemitism in Europe in the late 19th century was so horrific, and it's seen in the trial of uh, of uh, Captain Dreyfus, who was a French. Jew who was a captain in the French army and he was brought up on tr- uh, trumped up charges of treason but he didn't view himself as a jew he viewed himself as a Frenchman and, and and like most Jews who lived in France in the late 19th century they many of them were were secular they didn't live act or conduct their lives and have any customs in their lives that were any different from any any native-born ethnic uh, Frenchmen. And yet there was still this latent hostility towards Jews, and it all came out. And uh, so this is when Theodore Herzl, as a reporter for the newspaper in Vienna, attends a trial and realizes that the Jews cannot ever find peace outside of the land. They can't assimilate. It's impossible. And, of course, we know that that's part of the angelic conflict. And so that begins the rise of, uh, or as part of the rise of modern Zionism, leads directly to the founding of the, the first Zionist conference that was held in the 1890s and ultimately leads to the founding of the modern state state of Israel. This is part of God's providential plan. So, But there's a lot of debate and a lot of, even among evangelical Christians, there are a number of evangelical Christians that are, out of a replacement theology background, who don't think that there's anything significant about modern Israel or modern Jews because they rejected Jesus as Messiah when he came the first time, and so God took all these promises away from him. But you go back and you go into Genesis and you see this again and again and again, the ironclad way in which God makes these promises and the details related to the land itself and how God fulfills Uh, all the promises that he has already fulfilled in such a literal manner, we know he must fulfill that which has not been fulfilled in just a literal manner. So this is one of the important things. Now, we move on and we look at Isaac, and we need to ask a question. How are these people referred to? How are the events in their lives used by the writers of the New Testament? That's really an important question to ask. Because that shows us how the episodes in their lives that are revealed in the Old Testament still have significance and value in the New Testament. There's so many Christians today who get this idea, this notion, that, well, you know, we live after Christ, so the Old Testament isn't relevant anymore. And yet, when the Apostle Paul was addressing Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, and he said, all Scripture is God-breathed. In the verse just prior to that, he talks about how Timothy was raised by his grandmother and his mother, and they taught him the Old Testament from the very earliest age. And when he, so that when he says, all Scripture is God-breathed, he's not talking about the New Testament, even though part of the New Testament had already been given, and that clearly applies to the New Testament his primary focus contextually is on the Old Testament and so that verse that is so often quoted by by Christians today that all scripture is God breathed and is profitable for doctrine for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped thoroughly furnished for every good work that verse is talking about the Old Testament not primarily the New Testament so we look at the scripture and we see the Old Testament has tremendous value. So we need to ask these questions. How is Isaac used in the New Testament? Last week we reviewed how Abraham was used in the, in the, in the New Testament. We'll also ask how Jacob's used in the New Testament. Well, Isaac isn't as theologically significant as Abraham. In fact, not a lot is said about Isaac. He's mentioned uh, some 20 times in the New Testament He's mentioned first of all in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's mentioned as along with the just references to the three patriarchs of Israel in various passages, where it just mentions Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's no nothing said of him other than that he's one of the founders for uh, the Jewish people. So you have him mentioned in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew one two and Luke three thirty four. But he's then mentioned in this basic uh, formula of the three founders of the people of Israel. Then we have the history of Israel. He's second use in acts seven eight, and then he's referred to as the promised seed. This just simply refers to the fact that he was the first, the one who was promised to Abraham, and therefore he is a part of that founding of Israel. He's mentioned in Romans nine, seven and ten, Hebrews eleven, eighteen. And Galatians 4:28. The one significant thing about Isaac that is mentioned, that has great doctrinal significance, is that he is the one that Abraham was going to sacrifice as the promised seed. God had told Abraham once Isaac had grown to maturity, said, so take your son, your only son, and take him to Mount Moriah, where I'll show you, and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham willingly obeyed the Lord. And that shows a number of things about salvation. That's the ultimate picture of salvation, as we've studied, is that the last moment God stayed Abraham's hand and provided a substitute. So it's a fabulous picture of substitutionary atonement. But Isaac is relatively passive in that whole scenario. He's simply the one who is to be sacrificed. And then we have one reference to Isaac's blessing of Jacob and Esau, mentioned in Hebrews 11.20. So there, there's there are these various references to him. Most of them just allude to these historical events, but no great doctrines are built out on the basis of Isaac, as will in contrast to both Abraham, his father, and his son, uh, Jacob. Now we ask the next question: How is Jacob used in the New Testament? And just one more thing on Isaac. Remember, not a lot was said about Isaac. Isaac gets married, marries Rebekah, finds his bride in chapter 24. Then chapter 25, we go back to wrap up things with Abram and Abraham, and he takes another wife, Keturah, and has other sons. And then uh, Abraham dies, and then the text goes on to talk about uh, Isaac. And but it's the birth of the focus is on the birth of Jacob and Esau. Very little is said about Isaac. So we just seem to skip over Isaac very rapidly, and we come to Jacob, and we ask the question how is Jacob used in the New Testament? And this becomes a little more interesting, a little more significant. Jacob is mentioned uh, twenty-five times in the New Testament, a little more than his father Isaac. He's mentioned also in the genealogy of Jesus, in the same way that his father's mentioned. And he, is, of course, is included in the three patriarchs of the uh, Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Same basic references that you have for uh, Isaac. Second, his name is used as uh, identification for the nation, the house of Jacob. As we recall, Jacob is given a new name toward the end of his life at, when he wrestles with God at a place called Peniel. He meets God face to face. He's given a new name, which is Israel. The first he's called Jacob, Jacob the Chiseler, and so uh, the nation is also often referred to as uh, the house of Jacob. He's mentioned in terms of a historical reference. One, one time in John chapter 4, when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, it's Jacob's well, and the doctrinal significance is in reference to the doctrine of election, in Romans chapter nine, thirteen, where you have the mention of Jacob and Esau, and God's selection to bless Jacob rather than Esau, and that prophecy is given in uh, Genesis chapter twenty-six, verse or twenty-five rather, twenty-five twenty-three. And the Lord said to her, that is to you know, Rebekah, two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. And that prophetic announcement of God, addressed to Rebecca while the twins are still in the womb, it shows his sovereign selection of one over the other. And that becomes a classic reference, an illustration in the New Testament for election. But the question then arises just exactly what does this election mean? Mean, what is the significance of it? Is this for salvation or is this for something else? And of course, there's been tremendous discussion about that down through, uh, down through the ages. We'll get to a review of that in just a minute. Now here, I just thought I'd bring this slide back because this shows the chiastic structure, the outline of chapters 25 down through 35. Don't, you don't need to write all this down. I just want to use it for illustrative purposes that the center point, remember chiasm is based on the Greek letter chi. You may have heard it pronounced, uh, I learned to pronounce it as ki, but uh, the older pronunciation scheme was chi. So if you were in a fraternity, you always referred to it as chi. And that's why we get this word chiasm. And it looks like an X. And the center of the X, where things come together is the focal point of this literary organization, and the centerpiece is in 29 through 30, which is the birth of the children, and then the birth of the, the herds that become uh, Jacob's possession. So the focus is on how God is prospering him in light of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, it's been Abraham has one son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Isaac, but the but the uh, inheritance is going to go only to one. But when, um, when Jacob uh, comes along, Jacob is going to have 12 sons, and it's through them that the, that the nation will proceed. So chapters 29 through 30 focus on God's prospering, blessing the family to uh, provide for the founding of the, of the people. Some of the key events in Isaac. Remember, this is the Toledote of Isaac. This is what happens to Isaac. There's the prophecy when Rebekah is pregnant in chapter 25, which I just alluded to, which deals with the doctrine of election, which really means selection. That's what that word means, Bahar in the Greek, I mean in the Hebrew, uh, as well as the Clege in the, in the Greek. Uh, we also have the story of the inheritance, just to remind you, where uh, Esau goes out hunting, he's the hunter, he's the outdoorsman, and he goes out hunting and comes in exhausted, thirsty, tired, and Jacob's the mama's boy, and he stayed home, he's learned all the domestic skills, and he's cooked up this uh, pot of lentil soup, and it smells so good, Esau's famished, so he's willing to just trade off his inheritance for a good meal, and shows how what a light view he had. Now he's young. He's immature. We see a different picture of Esau a little later on. But at this stage in his life, he's young. He's immature. He has no concern whatsoever, respect for the blessing, the inheritance, the Abrahamic covenant, no spiritual interest whatsoever. And so he trades his inheritance for soup. Then in chapter 27, he gets robbed of the blessing. The hunter Esau gets trapped by the trickster, who's Jacob. And Jacob, while Esau's out hunting, Jacob dresses up uh, in animal hides so that he feels looks or he smells like an outdoorsman. The hides make him feel hairy, uh, like his brother Esau. He was smooth-skinned, and so he goes in and takes food to his father to get the blessing, and he deceives the older, now pretty blind Isaac. Into giving him the blessing. Now, we look at this from our culture and we think, well, how does this really work? I mean, this was gained under fraudulent uh, circumstances, so why is Isaac bound? Well, in their culture, he's bound. Once that blessing is given, it's a legal act. And even though it is done under, under false pretenses, it's still binding. But what lies behind that is the fact that God has already revealed that, I, that uh, Jacob is the one who's to be blessed. That's the significance of that prophecy back in Genesis chapter 25, that the older would serve the younger. The younger of the two, when, when the twins were born, the first one born was Esau, Jacob is second, Jacob's the younger, and he's the one who should get the blessing. So what we see here is their, their attempt Like so many of us, we try to manipulate God's blessing and God's plan for our life rather than relaxing and waiting upon the Lord to handle the situation. And so as a result of this, there's a lot of unintended negative consequences in the life of Jacob, just as what often happens in our lives. We try to manipulate God, we try to manipulate circumstances, and we end up just making things a lot worse rather than waiting patiently on the Lord to work out the details. And so... Jacob has to flee because Esau is just breathing fire and he's ready to kill him. And so in chapter, uh, chapter 28, uh, Jacob has to leave and he heads up to the north country up in what is now modern Syria in the area around Padan Aram and near Haran to live with his uh, uncle, Rebekah's brother Laban. And so he's going to learn a lot. But on the way, God is going to stop him as he's about to leave the land. It's important this takes place in the land at Bethel in the north. In chapter 28, and God promises to bless him. This is where he has that vision of Jacob's stairway to heaven, where he sees the angels ascending and descending. And God reaffirms the covenant to him and promises to bring him back to the land. Key promise there. Then Jacob goes and he lives with Laban, and now turnabout's fair play, and the trickster gets out, out tricked by his uncle Laban. The family. This is not. If you remember this, this is not one of those wonderful stories where you just really enjoy getting to know these people. The, Jacob, in his sin nature, is just. He is. He. He's just out to connive and trick, manipulate everybody. Laban's the same way. Everybody's trying to stab each other in the back and get the best deal they can and it doesn't work now while he's with Laban he marries first Leah he's tricked into that because he wants to marry Rachel Rachel is the love of his life and he wants to marry her but on the when they get married they had to wear a veil and so uh, Laban substitutes the older and less attractive Leah that Jacob doesn't want to marry but she's the older sister, and she's the one that needs to get married first, so it isn't until the after the wedding and on the wedding night that all of a sudden he wakes up the next morning, and there's Leah and not Rachel. So he's worked seven years for Rachel. Doesn't get her. So now he has to work another seven years to get Rachel, and during that time he marries Rachel, and during that time uh, the twelve sons are born. And so here's we trace the line of the seed. Through Isaac, Isaac marries Rebekah. The seed goes down to Jacob. He marries Leah and Rachel. Through Leah, he has the first four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Rachel is barren. Rachel says, oh, you take my handmaiden Bilhah as a concubine. This was standard in that practice. If a, a woman couldn't have a baby, she would have the, her servant take her place, and those children would be raised up as hers. So Jacob then takes Bilhah as a concubine, and she has two sons, Dan and Naphtali. Then Leah, who hasn't been able to get pregnant again, says, oh, well, if Rachel can do it, I can do it, so we'll take my, uh, my servant Zilpah, and uh, have Jacob take her as a concubine, and Zilpah has two sons, Gad and... And Asher. Then God opens Leah's womb again, and she has two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun. And by this time, Rachel finally, God blesses her, and she has Joseph and then Benjamin. And it, she dies in childbirth when Benjamin is born. They also have a daughter named Dinah. Now we look at this, and we see one more key event in Jacob's life, and that is in the sixth point, Jacob meets God face-to-face at Peniel, where the Abrahamic covenant is again affirmed to uh, Jacob. And he wrestles with God. This is a picture of how he has wrestled with God in his spiritual life, and now there is a literal, physical wrestling that takes place, and it shows how, and the point of the illustration is to show how God finally conquers Jacob's self-will and gives him a new name, Israel, which means one who wrestles or prevails with God. And from this point on, we see Jacob not as the chiseler and the trickster, but that that Jacob becomes uh, oriented to the grace of God, and we see a spiritually mature Jacob. We go through this section, there's several key doctrines we see reinforced. Before I get to this slide, because that's a short one, let me cover some other ones that we go through a review here. Key doctrines we covered in this section. Now remember, one of the reasons that I'm going through these reviews is so that as the prep school teachers go back, when they need to teach Genesis, they won't all have a chance to go through 177 hours, but they can listen to these summary tapes, and there's about maybe 20 or so summary tapes, and they'll be able to get a pretty good handle on what doctrines they need to teach as they go through uh, Genesis. We, We look at election with Jacob and Esau, and that is important. Maybe I have that development here. Blessings based on grace... That's a, Okay, let's let's go through this slide. Ba- blessing is based on grace. That's what we see again and again in Genesis, and specifically with Isaac and Jacob. Blessing is based on grace. Jacob is one of the most undeserving people you can imagine. He's just always trying to get the upper hand and manipulate God, but we learn that the blessing is based on God's grace, not Jacob's manipulation. It's not our works to gain God's blessing. We learn that grace is not based on human merit. We look at so many of these uh, leaders, these founders of Israel. We look at Jacob, we look at his sons, and they're just, they're not very nice people. And they have a lot of warts. But God's grace overrides all of that. We see the transformation of Jacob to Israel. How the cunning conniver becomes a prince with God. And then we see the increasing paganization of the descendants of Abraham. By the time we get into about chapter 35 and 36, we see that his sons aren't acting any different from the Canaanites living around them. Okay, now let's go back to election. One of the key doctrines we look at, I want to go through this fairly quickly. We've done it in detail. You can go back and listen to those tapes for more specificity. But first of all, definition. I'm going to look at, mention this as the, one of the key doctrines I want to focus on in this review because this is such a battleground today. With the, There's always this battle between Calvinism and Arminianism. Before that, it was Augustinianism and Pelagianism, and we need to just stop and look at these passages in, in detail. Definition. Election simply means selection. That's all it means. Don't confuse election with predestination. There's a relationship, but they're not synonymous terms. Election simply means choice. When you go into the voting booth, you elect somebody. You make a choice. That's all the word means in Hebrew and Greek. It simply means to make a selection. That God selects specific people to perform specific acts in history, or he selects specific groups. God makes and enacts specific choices in history. That's what election means. Where you get into the, the real debate is what's, what's the basis for that choice that God makes? Why does he select certain individuals to do this or to do that? And what's he selecting them for? Salvation or something else? So we'll look at two key terms. The first is unconditional election. Now, that first word we saw, unconditional, means that no conditions are attached to God's choice. No conditions are attached on God's choice, or at least uh, indicated. Unconditional emphasizes that election is not conditioned on God's foreknowledge, that certain ones will believe in Christ. Now, in the definition I have here, the focus is on salvation. And when you you talk about unconditional election in the context of Calvinism and Arminianism, they use the term unconditional election to say that God does not condition his decision on foreknowledge. That is, his decision to elect certain ones to salvation. Calvinists would say that election is not conditioned on man's ability or response. And we can agree with that. God did not choose us based on who we are 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 what we've done in terms of something meritorious. Okay, unconditional emphasizes that God alone initiates the process, and I think that's a good point. God alone initiates the process. Now, the other term that's used is conditional election, and this is a view that's often expressed by Arminians. Arminians are the followers of a Dutch theologian from the late 16th century, early 17th century named James Arminius. Those who got, and his idea was that God, those who God foresaw, if God foresaw that they would believe and repent, he would elect them to um, adoption as saints. But the problem is that all Arminians believe that an adopted believer may fall from grace and lose their salvation. So they end up with a very small number of those who are actually saved. They don't believe in eternal security. So conditional election is, as it's defined historically, is conditioned upon foreseen merit in somebody. See, for Arminians, faith in Christ is meritorious. It's Saving faith—it's a kind of faith. Does that make sense? For Calvinists, faith is also meritorious. That's why it's so important to to think through some of this. They—that's why if, if if I'm talking with a Calvinist friend of mine, and I say, "Well, I believe that God, in His omniscience, that part of His the reason He He chose believers for salvation, that part of that choice is is informed by his omniscience in knowing how I would respond to the gospel. But that's a non-meritorious choice because I see faith as non-meritorious. But a Calvinist sees faith as meritorious. So for them, if God takes into account my faith in Christ in his selection process, then that's a works orientation because for him, faith is inherently meritorious it's because he has two kinds of faith we've covered that before he sees two kinds of faith in the Bible that there's a faith in Christ that saves and a faith in Christ that's a professed faith that doesn't save and of course for many Calvinists a faith in Christ that doesn't save is because there's no fruit that's in keeping with repentance see that's where you get into lordship salvation And that lordship salvation isn't just to be saved, I have to make Jesus Lord of my life. But the essence of lordship salvation is the person who's truly saved is going to have works that are consistent with a regenerate person. And if those works aren't there to give you evidence of your salvation, then you aren't really saved. And the only way you can know for sure that you're saved is if there's evidence. But ultimately... Since your assurance is based on evidence, you may misinterpret the evidence, you can never have a hundred percent assurance of your salvation. Now, the one reason I'm I'm talking about this is this question's come up from a couple of people this last week. Calvinists believe in eternal security. Where their weak is on understanding assurance. Arminians don't believe in eternal security. But it, those of us who believe in a free grace gospel believe not only in a eternal security, but that you can have 100% assurance and conviction and confidence in your salvation from the instant you believe because it's not based on evidence living a certain way, but it's based on the promise of God. That God says if you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and because Christ's death is sufficient, you know that you have eternal life. And so that's where the difference lies. It's, you, some people think, well, maybe slicing bologna kind of thin, but that's, that's what theology does. Okay, third point. We all recognize that God is sovereign in history, that he is the ultimate cause of all things, and this has to be held. God has to be the ultimate determiner in history. Otherwise, history becomes chaotic and God is no longer God. Now, when you talk about this, you have to distinguish certain things. Uh, In in history, we have determinism. Determinism is the idea that you find in human viewpoint systems that all actions are caused by another. In other words, it lends itself to fatalism. Then you have self-determinism on the other side, which is that all actions are caused by self. Everything is pure random and flux depending on whatever choice you make. And then you have indeterminism, which... Actions are not caused by anything. Everything is pure random. Okay, fourth. Divine causation at the creator level is not the same as causation at the human level. Now, maybe that went by you really fast. But what that means is that when we talk about God causing things at the level of the creator, it's not the same as when you cause something. Because when the creature causes something, he forces it. He makes it happen. When we talk about divine causation, because God is sovereign and omnipotent, he can bring about that which he chooses without violating the volition of his creatures in the process. So how God brings about causation is totally different from what we observe within our finite experience. This is another important point because so many people want, we look at causation, how we understand it in terms of our experience, and then we extrapolate that back to God. But causation at the creator level is not the same as causation at the human level. Fifth point, the fact that no condition is mentioned in Scripture does not mean a condition does not exist. Now, what do I mean by that? Scripture never, never states clearly, other than me, it's indicated, I think, in a couple of passages like First Peter 1, verse 2, that God elects according to foreknowledge. But it, still, that doesn't mention what the condition is in his foreknowledge. Calvinists will say, God's election has to be unconditional. He can't say, I will save people on, on a condition that is meritorious. I'm going to, you know, refine that just a little bit there. And and they'll say that nowhere in the Bible, when it talks about God's electing people, does it mention the cause, the condition. So it's unconditional for them. There's no condition, and that comes across as being a purely arbitrary decision. Why did God choose Abraham? Did He just close His eyes and randomly pick Abraham? Well, if there's no condition in at all, then that's what you're left with, is a pure, random, arbitrary decision on God's part. Or did God make a decision that did have conditions, but those conditions just aren't stated in the Scripture? In other words, God in his omniscience took into account various factors and information about what he knew about different people and different events in history because in his omniscience, he immediately and simultaneously perceives all possibilities instantaneously and at the same time. And so he knows that exactly what, all, what any option would, would bring. And so he takes into account factors from his omniscience. Now, he didn't tell us what those factors are that he takes into account. So the absence of a factor doesn't mean that there's no factor. See, the absence of a stated condition doesn't mean that there's not a condition. Is that clear? Clears mud. Okay. Six. Whatever that condition is, it can't be based on something meritorious in the object of divine choice. In other words, when God makes a choice, it's not because of something meritorious in the individual. Because there's nothing meritorious in us. All of our works of righteousness are its filthy rags. So it has to be based on something non-meritorious. Seventh point. Divine selection, therefore, is not based on foreseen merit in the object of selection. See, if you're talking with the Calvinists, most of the time they say, Well, what you're doing, what you're saying is that God in his omniscience knew I would have meritorious faith. I would do something good. Plus R. They see faith in Christ as plus R. And that's why God chose me. Ah, that's works. And he would be right. But see, faith is non-meritorious because the merit isn't in the faith. It's in the object of the faith. Christ's work on the cross is the merit, not my faith. Anybody can believe anything. It's the object that matters. Eighth point. So faith is non-meritorious. Saving faith is not based on the merit of the one believing, but on the merit of the object of faith. It's Christ. It's what he did on the cross that has value, that has merit. Ninth point. Divine omniscience knows all that is knowable. Every permutation, every possibility, he knows what would have happened if... Sodom and Gomorrah had repented. He knows what would have happened if Chorazin and Bethsaida had repented. He knows the potential as well as the actual. So, point 10, since divine omniscience is direct, complete, and intuitive. By direct, I mean, God never learns anything. He never adds to his knowledge or loses knowledge. He, and and our, our knowledge is always learned and accumulated, but God instantaneously, simultaneously, and eternally has perceived everything that could possibly be. We can't even comprehend that. Our hard drives aren't big enough. So, point 11. God makes specific choices in history that are related to his knowledge. Thus, from the basis of his knowledge of all actual and possible events, God chooses to enact in history that which will bring about, A, his greatest glory, and, B, demonstrate his integrity and love to the fullest extent. So God chose the descendants of Abraham. God chose Jacob rather than Esau, not for salvation, but for a purpose in history. And that's important to understand. Point 12, thus God chooses in concordance with his knowledge, which includes knowledge of all possible decisions man could make. uh, God does not make random choices or choices that are arbitrary. Doesn't just select on the basis of no condition whatsoever. I'm going to I'm going to take you five over there, and everybody else is going to hell. Okay, let me skip ahead here. Let's Romans nine is a key passage that people go to for the children not yet being born or having done any good or evil. Minute, I skipped ahead. Yeah, Romans nine eleven is a passage they go to. The children referring to Isaac and Jacob. I mean, excuse me, Jacob and Esau children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works but of him who calls the election isn't based on something meritorious now when you look at Romans 9:11 in the context he's looking at the two children in the womb Esau and Jacob in terms of who their descendants will be they represent Ethnic groups, not individuals. And the quotation comes out of Malachi 1, 1 through 4, specifically verse 2. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now that is not a term of personal attraction or rejection. Because he's he's talking nationally. He's talking about the descendants in relationship to the covenant blessing. That he chose uh, Jacob and his descendants to be the ones to whom he would bless. But Esau also got blessing. Esau also had prophecy regarding him and his descendants. But it wasn't the double blessing. It wasn't the line of the seed. The line of the seed only went through, through Isaac. Okay. Romans 11:28, concerning the gospel, Paul says, "They Israel, are enemies for your sake, that is talking about the Gentiles. but concerning the election, they, that is Israel, views corporately, are beloved for the sake of their fathers. It is a corporate election. Now, I think that has great implications for the election that we have in Christ. But that's a, another topic and another doctrine. Okay. Let me just wrap up by going over some key doctrines that we looked at in this section. We looked at election, and then we looked at inheritance and the birthright that was passed on to Esau. We looked at, uh, in Isaac, we understood the faith rest drill, waiting for the birth, because there was a period there when Rebekah was barren as well, and he had to rest upon God. Uh, In Genesis chapter 26, once again, he fails to learn about grace orientation but God protects him. He does the same thing his father did. He goes to, there's a famine. He goes to live with the Philistines, lies about Rebecca that she's his sister, not his wife, and God protects him. What's he doing? He's protecting the seed. As we go on, we move into Jacob. We see problems with Jacob in manipulating the will of God. We also spend a lot of time talking about divine guidance. Now, let me go over this one more time because this seems to crop up again and again. How does God guide us today? He guides us in His Word. In the Old Testament, you had dreams and visions. You had ongoing revelation. Still, you had—you uh, could go to the prophet. You could—the uh, the high priest had these two stones called the Urim and Thummim. And nobody knows exactly how they worked, but it was a method of determining God's will. They—they they might have glowed or. They were used in some way to determine sort of a yes and no answer to various various questions. But in the church age, the canon of Scripture is completed. And the issue for the believer is under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to study the Word where it's stored in your soul. And when it's time to make decisions, your decisions are based on what you know from doctrine in your soul, and if you are walking by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, then the Holy Spirit is working covertly in and through the process as he guides you through God's word in your soul to make the right decision. Now, the problem that a lot of Christians have had over the years is people just are really, they don't want to take responsibility for their own decisions. They want to blame God. And so they're going to go someplace and they're going to go into some kind of meditative state and a prayer state. And, and you'll have people often talk about the fact that, that you, real effective prayer, you've got to have a, in, a, in a certain mental attitude or you're just not praying. And that's just, that's nowhere in the Bible. You can't document that. That you have to wait for the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Well, how do you qualify that? Well, furthermore, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to me today... Isn't that revelation? But revelation has either ceased or it hasn't ceased. If it hasn't ceased, then the Charismatics and the Pentecostals are basically right. If revelation has ceased, then we we don't go looking for more revelation. Because part of the cessation of revelation implies the sufficiency of Scripture. That God has given us all we need in order to make decisions in our lives. So the issue is learning the word of God, not seeking some sort of additional revelation in the form of, of some kind of liver quiver or some sort of inner impression or vibration, whatever it is, if I've got some sort of inner Urim and Thummim that's going to vibrate or glow when God wants me to turn left instead of turn right, then I'm still calling upon God to give me additional revelation. And that's arrogance. And furthermore, if God's not doing it and revelation has ceased, then what you end up doing is glorifying the own subjective impressions in your own, in your own emotions and in your own soul. And that's called idolatry. What you end up doing is, is going into what I've termed, because I just like the turn of phrase, epistemological antinomianism. Epistemology is how do we know what we know? How do you know what God wants you to do? You either have a clear set objective path, which is the Word of God, or you're waiting around for any kind of random impression to come along that is in addition to the Word of God. See, that again is a a key factor here. Either it's the Word of God alone or the Word of God plus something else, some kind of impression, inner light. You know, you end up going the route of the Quakers or the Shakers or... Any of the other inner light groups that have developed over the years that somehow God speaks to me through these sensations. And that's just adding to scripture. And it always leads to problems. So we spent a lot of time talking about that and that we make decisions in life in the church age based upon the doctrine in our soul. We pray. We're in fellowship. God, knowing that God the Holy Spirit works covertly, He takes the doctrine of our soul, He brings it to memory, He works through circumstances, He works through advice perhaps with other people, but there's no additional insight or revelation. The issue is, can you stand on your own two feet on the Word of God and live your life? What, what's, what happens if you don't? What, what happens when you say, oh, well, I made that decision to buy that house because I prayed about it and the Holy Spirit told me that's what I should do, and now look what the market's done. I've lost all my money. Well, must be God's fault. The Holy Spirit takes it again. You know, we don't take responsibility for our own decision-making. We wait on the Holy Spirit, and when, when that when we get this liver quiver, then we can just blame God for anything that goes wrong, and we never take ownership or responsibility for our own spiritual life, We never take ownership or responsibility for our own decision-making. Now, in the Old Testament, they had additional revelation coming because the canon wasn't complete. But in the church age, we have a completed canon, we have a sufficient Savior, a sufficient revelation, and so we have to learn the Word of God and trust in Him. So we went through a lot on, um, on knowing God's will. Then as we got into into Jacob, we looked at the keys to spiritual growth. We saw that testing is a key to, to advance. We saw Jacob and people testing. He had to deal with Leah, and he had to deal with Laban. And in the process, he learns to trust God. And God, as he matures, then God uh, begins to bless him. We learned a lot about God's sovereign plan, about his faithfulness, and we learned about grace. None of these people are meritorious in the least. We see them not only warts and all, but mostly warts. But God blesses them because of his sovereign choice and because of imputed righteousness, not because of their talent. And then we closed with Joseph. And the major lesson in Joseph is, is that God works all things together for good. That even though we go through undeserved suffering, as Joseph did, even though we go through some deserved suffering, because some of Joseph's suffering was because he was, when he was young, he was a little bit arrogant towards his brothers, and they reacted and they were bitter towards him, but he kind of lorded his position over them as well. And so there was a degree of self imposed misery there. But when he, after he was sold into slavery, which he didn't deserve, and after Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of trying to seduce her or rape her, and he's in prison, it is undeserved suffering. And yet God is using all of that to bring him to a position of power in Egypt so that he can provide a place of protection, a sanctuary for his family to come to, to survive not only the famine of his day, but also to be protected away from the paganism of the surrounding cultures so that they can grow to a mighty people of Uh, two to three million, and come out in the Exodus. So we see the big lesson with Joseph is that even though the brothers meant it for evil, God meant it for good. That even though we look immediately at details in our life that seem horrible, unexplainable, unjustifiable, and we wonder, where is God? We understand that God is working in the macro events of history, and he is working all these details together for good, so that God is glorified in the process, and that's where we end our study of Genesis. So we'll come back next week, skip ahead to the events in 1 Kings, and I bet nobody here has really studied 1 Kings before. So that'll be fun. I've never taught it before, so we'll have a lot of fun. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through this review in. Genesis reminding us of the key doctrines we've studied and looked at over the past uh, four years, and we pray that you would help us remember these things and perhaps go back and uh, study our notes and listen to the messages again that we can get these doctrines firmly uh, a place in our soul. Father, we pray that you would watch over us as we go home, keep us safe on the roads. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.